So today our question is, is why are there more, so many versions of the Bible? you ever have unbelievers ever ask you this question? Why are there so many? Which version of the Bible do you use? Why are there so many? The Mormons. The Mormons, yeah. Yeah, um, Muslims, if you have Muslim friends. And also, um, I was talking to my boss this week. He said he was he was at an event where he was doing a presentation on science. Oh, it was the um, career day up here at a middle school in Lenora. His kids go to one of the middle schools. And so Jeff was doing a presentation up there. And uh, he said there was actually another scientist there this week when he was doing his presentation. And uh, But the scientist was from JPL, and he was kind of a skeptic. And so... He was poor guy. He was getting really uncomfortable that Jeff was a Christian, and uh, you know he was going to be talking about science to the kids and what that was going to look like. But uh, immediately, the guy's question to him was, well, "What version of the Bible do you use?" So I think many unbelievers have confusion over why do we have so many versions of the Bible. And if you walk into your local Christian bookstore, do they have such things anymore? Is that like online? Online. Yeah. 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 There's a few. In Appalachian. Yeah, that's right. I could have brought some off my shelf this morning in several different translations, but you go in there and you're looking and you're thinking, which, which one of these do I get? How do I sort through all of these? Okay, so there's three main kind of ingredients that go into a good Bible translation. And I made this in the shape of a funnel. So it comes out the other side, hopefully with a, with a good translation. Starting up here is a, a mastery of the source language. You want to have a good Bible translation of somebody who really, in this case, knows Greek, Hebrew, and Arabic, the three languages of Scripture. But then you also want to have someone who has a high aptitude in the receptor language, the language that the, the scriptures are going to be read in. So in this case, that's English. And if you want to have a team of people, a well-qualified team, uh, the best Bible translations, I think, happen when there's peer review. When you have scholars who are able to check each other's translations and provide feedback and input, as opposed to just having one person uh, do the do the translation. So you, those are some of the the critical ingredients to a good translation and finding a balance of all three of these. Now the, the first step is to analyze the expression in the original language to determine its meaning. That's kind of the foundational step. That's why you have to have somebody who's an expert in that source language. And then you want to transfer that meaning meaning into the receptor language. And then you want to restructure the meaning into a mode of expression for the receptor audience. And that is the tricky part of Bible translation, is that process of going from the original language into the receptor language in a way that makes sense, because languages are different. So first we're going to talk, we're going to talk about uh, three or four kind of families of translation. So you can understand when you're looking at a Bible on Amazon or at the local Christian bookstore, which family does this Bible belong in? And if you kind of understand these families, then you're going to understand a little bit about the theory, the translation theory behind it. So the first one is what we often call literal translations. We sometimes call these word-for-word -word translations, where 
as much as possible, they just go word for word from the original into the English word for word, okay? And uh, the primary concern here is, is accuracy to the original text. They're really trying to find some way of accurately translating it from the original language into the receptor language as closely as possible. So here's some examples of this. The NASB, which is local here, is uh, from the Lachman Foundation, I think they're over in Fullerton. That was a big uh, translation back in the 80s. <coughs> More recently, we've had the ESV, which John was, Pastor John was using for a while, yeah, the well, English Standard Trans uh, Version. The NRSV is the new Revised Standard Version. It's on, based on an older one from early 20th century of the Revised Standard Version, RSV. But these are examples of translations in that family. Okay, so if you think of quote-unquote literal translations, which has its own uh, problems with when it's not always quite literal, but uh, for the most part, you're going to look at these as being the word-for-word word or literal translations. Yeah. So if you put the New King James? On the New King James would be there, okay. yeah. <laughs> the second family of translations are what are called dynamic translations or dynamic equivalence translations. And they use a little different translation theory. This is more like a thought-for-thought thought translation of the Bible. So what they do is they'll go through the scriptures and they'll say, well, you know, yes, the words are important and yes, we should make it as close to the accurate as, as the original as possible, but sometimes the meaning isn't quite conveyed because of certain uh, cultural language differences. It's better to go for a thought-for-thought thought translation to translate kind of the meaning behind the words, okay? So the primary concern here is that of readability, understandability. They really want the receptor language to understand what the author meant. Now, the word-for-word -word translations, they're more concerned with the accuracy of going from the original into the receptor language. And if the reader doesn't understand it, often the thought is, well, maybe the reader needs to um, get a little more education so that they can understand it. In the dynamic equivalence camp, their view is, look, the modern person is picking up the scriptures possibly for the first time. We need to really work on readability. And readability versus accuracy is the great balancing act of Bible translation. It is those two values that are in constant competition with each other, readability and accuracy. And as one goes up, sometimes the other goes down. So you're constantly compensating um, for those two things. So examples here would be the New International Version, both the 1984 and the 2011. The New Living Translation. If you've never discovered the New Living Translation, I thoroughly enjoy it, especially for introducing young people to the scriptures. It's a highly readable and accessible translation. And it is a legitimate translation. It's not a paraphrase. It, it was actually rooted in the original languages. And it's a wonderful way for new believers. I always recommend a New Living Translation for someone who's a new believer. Um, and my husband and I often do this if we're reading scriptures for our devotions. This is actually the translation we use most often for 
our personal devotional reading because it just is kind of a fresh approach to the scriptures and it's not wording that we've heard before and so it just sort of comes at us in a different, slightly different angle. So if you haven't yet explored the New Living Translation, I want to encourage you to maybe take it for a test drive. Free translations, uh, free translations are not about the price. Um, these are uh, common language translations. These are things where uh, maybe there was some level of consultation with the original language, but it's combined with what I call grade school vocabulary and even the incorporation of some uh, colloquialisms or cultural idioms. So they're really trying to put the heavier emphasis on the receptor culture and on the receptor language and simplifying the vocabulary greatly. These are good Bibles sometimes for people where English is a second language. Um, they're just trying to get into the Bible. Maybe if you have a Chinese student living with you and, you, and they show interest in scripture, uh, maybe a uh, free translation might be a good way to go. But these, these translations typically have like sixth grade and under vocabulary, usually more like third grade. They're, they're much more accessible. Examples of this are the New International Reader's Version. Many children's Bibles are in IRV. Uh, the Phillips Bible, the Old Good News Bible from the 70s, or the Contemporary English Version. I believe, if I remember right, that one uses, is the one that uses third grade vocabulary. Finally, we get to the family of, of versions called paraphrase, okay? And these are a summary of an existing English translation. So these don't make any claim to go to the original languages. They are looking at it purely from an, in, an already existing English translation and then some writing a paraphrase or a summary of that. Examples would be the Living Bible from the 1970s. And so what happened there, Melinda, is that some people really liked the ethos of the Living Bible because that was really the first Bible to come out in the language of the common people. One man, uh, I think his name is Ken Taylor, to uh, put the Bible into everyday language. And then what came along about maybe 15 or so, 20 years ago, was a group of translators wanted to take that ethos of keeping the Bible in a readable state, but wanted to go back to the original languages. And so that's how the New Living Translation was born. So they should not be confused with, with one another. And also the message. You ever heard of the message Bible? Yeah. Yeah. You know? So the message Bible is not a translation. It is a paraphrase Bible by one guy named Eugene Peterson. And one of the, the points I made early on, remember the, the, the slide with the funnel? I said one of the ingredients to a good Bible translation is to have a team of scholars, right? So these are both examples where it was just the work of one person. And so it's not that it's bad or heretical or anything, it's just that it's not a translation. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a paraphrase of an existing English translation. So, as long as I think that these things can have their place, as long as you know what they are, <laughs> because Sometimes they're highly enculturated. They, they, the these gentlemen have put a lot of 
um, colloquialisms of American Christianity into these paraphrases. And so that is something you need to be aware of as you're reading it, and you don't want to maybe use this as an authoritative translation if you're trying to build a, a, a theological case for something, <laughs> right? So, yeah. Where do you place the Amplified Bible? You know, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that one, and I need to add it because I get asked that question every time I do this talk. And it just gives you many words for one word. Yeah. So it kind of enlarges the meaning of it too. And I'm not sure if it would fit better in a free translation or in a um, dynamic equivalent. I, I haven't read their translator's notes, but if you, if you don't know, the thing to do is read the front of your Bible. It will explain what it is, and it will explain how the scholars arrived at this translation. They'll tell you what apparatus they used of the Greek and the Hebrew. So if you're unsure, if I don't touch on your favorite one, just read in the front notes, and it will explain. That's why I'm, I'm teaching you how to fish. Go read the pages in the front of the book. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So accuracy versus readability. This is the great trade-off, as I said before, of Bible translations. This, think of this as a counterweight. You know, you're constantly trying to to uh, keep these two things in balance, and there are certain trade-offs that you have to make in the process. So accuracy versus readability. Sometimes. Uh, translating something involves acknowledging that there have been changes in a language. How many of you know that language is not static? It changes. I'm sure you can think of ways. Probably reading Shakespeare in there. Yeah. Let's compare Shakespeare with reading uh, text uh, abbreviations. You know, on text messages. Our language changes. A language is fluid. There's nothing that is static about things. Have you ever tried to read the original Beowulf in Old English? It's almost impossible to understand what it is, but it is still English. It is the, it is the foundation of what became our language today. Like I said, if you're conversant in Elizabethan English, you'll be able to read the King James no problem. But if you're not, you might find yourself thinking, I don't know what this means, right? There's and, yeah. three words that come to mind on the King James. Okay. That, uh, conversation actually does not mean talking in the King James. It has to do with lifestyle. Mm. Uh, prevent those who go before will not prevent actually the word meant precede which uh, oh. is changed uh, substance in Hebrews 1 faith is the substance, uh, substance actually a confident so. assurance it has a different meaning than, mm. than the original language yeah. so you find those kinds of things and they're in the King James they're in the King James yeah so I think we're going to look at, yeah, an example here. But those, I'm glad you brought those up, Dean, because that's uh, other examples that I have here. So here's, here's Job 36-33. It says, the noise thereof sheweth concerning it, the cattle also concerning vapor. Uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so here's what the NIV 1984 does. His thunder announces the coming 
storm, even the cattle make known its approach. Hmm. So this is just one example of how language changes. <laughs> and so that's not a bad thing. Some people will say, you know, well, the, the English of the KJV is more elegant, or it's, it's, it's more traditional, or it's somehow more virtuous. I, I, I don't personally subscribe to that philosophy. To me, it's just patently obvious that language changes over time. I'm not up for making it into a moral issue. Right. Um, I, I don't really see any evangelistic value to forcing believers to read the King James Version. I don't think we should put unnecessary obstacles in front of them. The gospel in our culture has enough, yeah. <laughs> enough of, of its own inherent obstacles. Um, so let's not invent ones that maybe aren't exactly necessary. It's sort of my train of thought about that. Sometimes translation involves acknowledging changes in the scholar's understanding of the ancient languages or manuscripts. So the first point was sometimes it means acknowledging our language changes. Sometimes our understanding of the original language changes as well. And that gets updated over time. Here's a great example of that. There aren't a lot of these. I don't want this to be unsettling to you. This is like a few occasional things that happen, okay? One of them is, this is from the 1984 NIV, and we've all heard this very famous verse from Luke chapter 2, that very late Jesus in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, right? And we have no end of speculations based on this word inn. You know, you, if you do a, a, a Christmas pageant, you have to have an innkeeper, right? And the innkeeper's wife, right? And then and, and you've got to have a no vacancy sign. And, you know, there's, and then maybe the, the scenario is Joseph is hurriedly going from door to door in the rain while Mary's on the donkey and he's asking for a place to stay. And they go to the local hotel and there's no vacancy. And, um, well, I have this barn in the back and you can maybe go back there. That's sort of the scenario that we get <coughs> largely from one word. So this is, in the NIV 2011, they made an adjustment to the translation. The word is kataluma, right here. And they changed the translation to actually be guest room because there was no room for them in the guest room. So what does this do to your, we, we just blew up your manger scene. Most scholars think today that what was happening is they were going to their national, the home of their national ancestor, their, their family ancestry. Um, Mary and Joseph were both from the line of David. Bethlehem is the city of David. And so they're going there. They probably had relatives there. It was a Middle Eastern culture, highly based in hospitality. It seems somewhat unlikely that they would um, not have relatives there and that they would be going to a hotel. Um, now, there's some conversation about that, but this is, this is a little shift in the translation. Again, I don't want this to be deeply disruptive for you. This isn't happening everywhere in the text. But every once in a while, as we gain deeper understanding and, and we reflect on these things, there was a push to change this in some of the more recent translations. <coughs> what is the word for and? Well, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, it actually uses a different word. 
was translated for in. And this is the same root for kataluma, which is used in Luke 22, 11, as guest room where they had the Last Supper. And it's the same, it's the same room. It could be upper room um, or guest room. So anyways, it's kind of an interesting little excursion there on how sometimes our understanding of words changes or we think more deeply about it and it will change the meaning slightly. Sometimes, a third point I want to make is that sometimes translation involves interpretation. And boy, is this tricky when this happens. So I've got a little handy-dandy handout here. The word sarks means flesh in Greek. And it can mean your flesh as in your flesh and bones, your body, right? But Paul also uses this word uh, several times to just to contrast it with the spirit. Walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, right? Sarks. So the question is, is what does the word sarks or flesh mean? Now here's where we start really understanding um, the differences in different translation families that we talked about earlier. You'll see at the top here this little spectrum of translations, and you have at one end the literal, or what we call word for word, on the left, or what's also called more technically formal equivalents. Then in the middle, there's dynamic equivalents, or phrase for phrase, as we called it, and then there's paraphrase, okay? So that's what they put amplified. Okay, that's where they they put it there. Yeah, I got this from. This is actually handout I had back in my old seminary days. So when my professor made it up, that's where he put it. So it's not necessarily authoritative, but uh, uh, okay. Galatians five sixteen. What does the Greek word sarks mean? Well, we see a number of treatments there. The NASB, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. KJV, uh, I, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, so what did they do to the word sarks? They just kept it flesh. It's a literal, quote-unquote, literal word-for-word translation. They're not trying to interpret it for you. They're not trying to help you understand it. They're just saying the word sarks in Greek means flesh, so we're translating it as flesh. But do you have any real understanding as to what flesh means? If I'm a new believer and I'm reading the word flesh, what might I think it means? Your body, right? Yeah, my skin, my my. My physical flesh, right? That would be sort of confusing, wouldn't it, if you were a new believer? And you would have to go engage in what Mrs. Ganey did, which is really the process of interpretation. She looked at the surrounding context. She was trying to get to what, look at other, other, how other translators dealt with it. But that's what a process that we call interpretation, okay? But in the Bible translation, in the word for word, you can see that there's there's a lot behind this word for Paul, right? And just calling it flesh 
There are certain limitations to this word-for-word -word translation because you have to engage in an extra step of interpretation to figure out what does he mean by this. So the Amplified actually did a good job there. They said desires of the flesh, and then in parentheses they said of human nature without God. Okay. So that was kind of That's, that's their interpretation. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it's interesting that Paul uses this word that has connection to the physical body right. to connote something that we say is spiritual. And, and to me, I think that really speaks of the interplay between the physical world and the spirit realm. Right. And it's an interesting word that he chooses there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to connote this. But, you know, if you're a new believer and you just read, walk, uh, walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. If I was a new believer, I would have no idea what that is really telling me to do. That would be tough. So let's look at the dynamic equivalent. What they do is the NIV. Uh, or NLT is uh, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature or then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now, here, remember this is a thought for thought translation. So they're looking at the word starts and they're saying, asking the question, what did Paul mean by this? And then what are they doing? They're engaging in interpretation. Right? To come up with what the translators think Paul meant by this. Now, what is the downside of that? Well, a lot of people pick out words and make a whole big point on this one word, and then it turns out that that really wasn't even the original word. That word, the original word wasn't even there. So, okay. I mean, as long as you're aware. So, but if we're not teaching people the original languages, are they going to be aware? No. Well, there's a problem with the, the potential of the slanting now towards okay. the people's right. agenda of the translators. Oh, people don't have agendas. What are you suggesting? This is why a team translation is so vitally important. Is because you want to have peer review. So that there's not one person's bias going through the whole thing. You want to have a team consensus because especially if you're engaging in a dynamic equivalent translation or thought for thought, you are engaging on some level in, in interpretation. And in that way, your Bible is your very first interpretation level because it is already interpreted for you on some level. Bible translations are not without their politics. They are not without, they're not mean. They're not immune. And that's where you want a team of people that even cross denominational lines. So you want to read those pages in the front of your Bible that tell you who the members of the team were and that there was a good diversity of balance. Are you seeing how vital that is? Because and those, those names at the beginning that you skip over, those are all scholars at seminaries and you want to know like, hey, are these all Lutherans? Or are there some Baptists on here? Are there some Methodists? Because then you've got different traditions talking to each other and hopefully you get to the points of unity in when you're offering these translations. Okay, then we finally have the paraphrase. So here's where we really get into even more deeper levels of interpretation. You won't obey your selfish desires. You won't be doing wrong things your evil nature wants to do. But the Amplified really explains it. You won't you will walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled and guided by the Spirit. 
and you will not gratify the cravings and desires of the flesh of human nature without God. So they're, they're interpreting it for you right there in the text of what they think those terms mean, what Paul means by them. And the message is then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. Okay, so what I want you to appreciate is that when you understand a little bit of something about these families that we laid out at the beginning, you can kind of understand how they approach the scriptures differently. Hopefully you can also see some level of value of being able to check the, the original. When you're really doing some deep study on theology, you might want to know more of what that term means before you build some super complex theological structure on that. And if your pastor is camping out on one word, yeah. you better believe the first thing I'm doing is I'm going to look it up in the original to see what's what's there so that you can really make sure that um, dealing fairly with the text. So anyways, this is this is part of the 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 struggle of can you also see the, the struggle between um, accuracy versus readability? Which of these is more accurate? The flesh is right. more of a definition, but accurate in terms of what? Yeah. In terms of what it means, or in terms of the, 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 the what the term, the definition of the word? It's it, it's difficult to say. But accessibility, we might say, well, maybe this, uh, the message might be the most accessible, possibly, but might not be the most accurate. Sometimes translations involve interpreting cultural idioms. What's a cultural idiom? It's oh, slang. It's things that we say in our culture that we all know what they mean, but a hundred years ago, they don't know what in the world we would be talking about, right? Just one tiny example. Uh, the NASB and the NIV uh, translated, can you read one another with a whole kiss? But the Phillips, which is more of a free translation, uh, says give one another a hearty handshake. <laughs> because we don't, we're not being kissy as Americans. It sounds, it sounds quite... But these are the kinds of tensions, you know, what do we do with this? Here's another one, it's Isaiah uh, chapter 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, they are, though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Well, what if you're a missionary, you're a Wycliffe missionary Bible translator, and your culture doesn't know what snow is? Then what are you doing? You know, that's, that might be a problem. Uh, would it be legitimate to translate it as God has made my sins white as snow to God has made my sins white as yucca? Maybe. Or uh, some other white thing, a white flower or plant or something. But do, do you see that the, the tension is, what do you do? What is the literal translation? Do, must we keep it white as snow because that's what it is? And then we try to educate the people on what snow is. We bring in some pictures. We, you know, we do this. Or do we change it and transculturate it? These are the, the difficulties that that missionaries have to deal with. Um, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what if you're dealing with Stone Age culture that doesn't know what a lamb is? 
would it be legitimate to translate it, Jesus is the pig of God, because they know what pigs are. Yeah. That could be a problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that might be offensive. So should Christian missionaries and pastors educate or transculturate biblical idioms? This is a very serious missiological question that if you go to missionary school, that you would have to wrestle through. And this has a very um, important connection to Bible translations. And um, some people have, in our own cultures, have uh, thought about, well, maybe we should put the Bible in urban terms, in urban language, urban dialect, and transculturate that for the inner cities. Haven't they tried that? That's the thing. Some people want to turn the scriptures into a graphic novel. And oh, they've you, done that too. They've done that too. <laughs> uh, my daughter has one that's all in Legos. <laughs> it's the Lego Bible. And, um, so are these tools to build biblical literacy? Or do they have a long-term effect of watering things down? These are very important questions for us to to consider and to think about. Okay, concluding thoughts. In general, English translations are, I think, very adequate to understand the Bible. The, the issues that I've pointed out today, I think, are, are sort of fun and interesting and think good things to be aware of. But I don't want you to walk away from this and think, oh, I can't trust my Bible at all. In most cases, you're perfectly fine using a translation and remember, Jesus and the apostles, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, used the Septuagint translation. They used a Greek translation of the Bible. So we know that Jesus doesn't have hang-ups about translations. We don't have to use the original, um, which is the argument that Muslims say you have to understand the elegance of the, the Arabic. We don't have that that restriction because Jesus himself and the apostles quoted from the Septuagint. So we know that God is A-OK -okay with translations and we want the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth and we're not going to make people in remote parts of the world learn Hebrew first. Okay? So uh, <laughs> this is, but this is the Christian way of being and this is part of our ethos and why, why we do this. Sometimes it is useful to be able to check something in the original language and learning how to use some tools. That might be a fun teaching series to do sometime of how to use some of these tools. I've never done that before. Um, to learn how to just check something in the original language if you want to look something up. That is a, a very useful skill to have. And it's perfectly okay to help new believers get started in a Bible that's a simpler translation. We don't have to get them, you know, into the most complicated thing. Like I said, I'm a big believer in uh, the, the gospel is its own level of, of stumbling block, as, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians. So let's not set up artificial stumbling blocks. Let's make the path as easy as possible, like the apostle said in in uh, Acts 15. So if if we might think about a, a simpler translation to start a new believer with, I think that's fine. As long as there's a kind of an educational path to helping them grow in their understanding of Scripture, and we don't leave them there. That's that's the problem if we leave people as baby Christians. It's okay to be a baby Christian. We just want to have a pathway 
from that into more what we call meat-eating situations, right? But um, it's perfectly okay to let them start with something simpler. A study Bible is really just a Bible with a conveniently located commentary. That's how I want you to think of it. There's nothing authoritative about the notes. One time I bought a Bible for a new believer, and I bought it because it had all these cool study notes that I thought would be helpful. What I realized is that almost backfired because the new believer didn't understand that the notes were from humans. <laughs> and they didn't understand the difference between the scripture and the commentary. So you always want to make that clear to people that the commentary is not inspired. Um, and it's, it's, it's just convenient that it's published and bound together in, in one place. The best Bible study Bibles are those, again, who are assembled by a team of scholars not an individual. The best study Bibles are those that take teams from across denominational lines and look for points of agreement and unity. Um, I tend to not recommend study Bibles where the notes are all written by like one person or from one persuasion, unless that's what you're looking for. If you buy the New Geneva Study Bible, you're buying a study Bible where all the commentary is going to be written from a reform, a neo-Calvinistic reform perspective. That's what you're buying. If you buy the John MacArthur Study Bible, you are buying the commentary by one man added to scripture. Okay? So if you buy the NIV Study Bible, which is my study Bible of choice, you're purchasing study notes from scholars across denominational lines. And it's what they deal nicely with controversial passages of giving you the different views. Some Christians say this, some Christians say this, some Christians say this. And they kind of let you decide. But it's not promoting a certain denominational agenda. Okay? So it just depends on what you want. If you want one person's perspective, go out and buy something like the John MacArthur Study Bible. You'll get one man's perspective. If you want to... With Schofield Bible. With Schofield Bible, that's right. So I look for Bibles that, if, when they're written by a team, they tend to have less theological bias in terms of one particular tradition, unless that's what you want. Okay? Um... Look for some key things. Look for maps. They're becoming increasingly hard to find these days in study Bibles. I don't know why publishers are leaving maps out. When my kids were growing up, I'd love to pull out the map. And every passage we would study, we would, one of the first things we did after we read it was look on the map. Where are we? What's happening? What river is mentioned? What place is mentioned? Um, Cross-references can be helpful. Um, where are other places in scripture where this theme comes up? Uh, that can be very useful. Summary charts are nice. Uh, those are very useful. It's like all the parables of Jesus on one chart. Or all the miracles of Jesus in John. Or comparing and contrasting what miracles are covered in different gospels. I like those summary charts. I like study Bibles that focus more on the cultural background. Because that's the most obscure to me. I like Bibles that explain the culture and help build a bridge between me as a 21st century American and the ancient world. Those are usually the study Bibles that I tend to gravitate. A presentation of multiple viewpoints, I think, just brings balance. It, it's helpful. So, anyways, that's 
that's just a few tips on picking out a study Bible. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you and for your act of preserving your word for us. And we thank you. Yeah, Lord, I just find it utterly amazing that we have this thing that you gave us called a mind. And that this mind can apprehend and look at a word printed on a page and that that brings to us a concept and that that is part of what you have put in place to help build unity between us. I find that utterly fascinating. That we can look at words written on a page and all be individuals and yet all have minds and that these words prompt us to worship you. It's just amazing. And I thank you so much for how You've made us to be curious beings. Part of being created in your image, I believe, is to be a curious being. And Lord, we just ask for more curiosity. That you would give us supernatural and sanctified levels of curiosity to look into your word and to, to apprehend and interpret what you are saying to us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.